continue our study in the book of Genesis. Over the last 10 or, or for, for 10 weeks, we'll be, uh, we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis. I hope you've been using your study guides, if you have those, to read each day the different readings. And by the end of the 10 weeks, you'll finish the whole book of Genesis. We have been on Sunday morning, been hitting some of the main highlights or main characters, if you will. Last week, we talked about Isaac, if you'll remember. And today, we're going to look at Jacob. So in your Bibles, turn with me to the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, title of the sermon today is Wrestling with God, Jacob and Us. It's an interesting thing if you really begin to break this down to the bare essence of what it is. Why do we wrestle with God? Why do we think we could wrestle with God? Yet the reality is we, we do. We wrestle with God. About many things we have to deal with God. And in our passage today, we're going to see that this man named Jacob had a time when he was wrestling with God or when God was wrestling with him. And God was going to make him into a, 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 a man that he could use. And out of this man would come a nation. That nation would be the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, chosen by God before they ever existed. But not chosen so they could sit around and talk about how chosen they were, but chosen so that God might use them to share his message with the world that needed to know that God who created them also loved them, and God who loved them would send his son who would be Messiah, who would take their place upon a cross and die for their sins, be buried, and three days later rise from that, from that tomb, overcoming sin and death and hell for all who would put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior. Sometimes we... We find ourselves, if we're not careful, much like Israel, thinking we're, we're chosen or we're saved to be saved, or we're chosen to be chosen. We neglect that we are chosen or we are saved of God to share his message to a world that desperately needs to know that Jesus Christ lives. Amen? The world desperately needs to know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the scripture tells us that unless we who are the chosen are the called of God, we who are the church, share with them the gospel message of Jesus Christ, there's no way possible for them to know of that gospel. And if they don't know of the gospel, how can they put their faith and trust in Jesus, who is the very personification of the gospel and the one who did for us on the cross what we could not do for ourselves? The church, we are the called out ones. We are the ones that are sent out by God to share the gospel with mankind. But in reality, we too at times wrestle with God. I find it interesting, if not a little bit sad sometimes, the way we wrestle with God as we look at life. You do realize that you and I have a very narrow perspective of the world at times. Well, you do realize that we Americans specifically think that the world revolves around the United States of America and that all things revolve around us and we're the center of God's universe. Well, that really is not the truth. Uh, we have not really had to face much. We talk about the persecuted church. And I've always wondered, when, when the heat goes up, Lord, where will I be? When, when, when it costs something to be a follower of Christ, other than people looking at you kind of strange, or, or a little bit of time here or there, and a little bit of money here and there that, that you feel like you're required to give, where will we be when the heat is turned up? We wrestle with God about sometimes the most small and even meaningless things. We wrestle with each other when it comes to those things. I believe God is at work 
as he has always been at work in the lives of his people to make us into the people he desires for us to be so that we might be used of him to touch a world for the cause of Jesus Christ. God was at work in Jacob's life preparing him for the great call that he had upon his life, and not only his life, but on those who would come out of Jacob. The very tribes and, and the nation that would flow out of the life of Jacob, that God would use them to be able to share his message with the world that desperately needed that message. Let's read our passage today, starting with verse 22 of chapter 32. We'll read through verse 32. Here's what it says. And, it, and he arose at night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabuk. He took them, sent them over to the brook, and sent them over, over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of that place, Peniel. For I've seen the face, for I've seen, excuse me, God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle of, of the shank that was on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle of the shank. Now, left alone, this passage leaves us wondering what is going on. Because only from Jacob's perspective do we see that he considered that he had an encounter with God. In the scheme of all that we find in this passage, we see that Jacob, or, or let me put it this way, that God had continually been reaching out to Jacob. God had continually been working in Jacob's life to bring him to this point. I think this is a point for Jacob that is a crisis of faith for him. It is a point of decision for him. It's a point of determining how he's going to respond to God. And you notice that it wasn't Jacob that ran to God, but it was God who ran to Jacob. It wasn't Jacob who came to God and wrestled with God, but it was God who came and wrestled with Jacob. And I would dare say that God has wrestled with each and every one of us. God found us wherever he found us. And God began working in our life. And in some of those ways that God began working in our life, long before we ever responded to the call of the Holy Spirit unto salvation, God had already been at work. God had already been doing things. God had already been laying things out. And you know, if I, if I had some of you share your testimony, you probably could share with me how, how you could look back and you see God's hand in your life, even before you knew him even before you cared about him, even before you trusted him and loved him. You see, God worked in your life to bring you to that point of faith, that point of crisis of your own faith, that point of where you were willing to say, okay, it's no longer me, Lord, but it is you. And God had to struggle with Jacob in this way. Now, who is this Jacob guy? Where did he come from? Well, last week we talked about Isaiah. And when you go back in the chapters, you will see a lot about this Jacob guy. By the way, I would say you probably wouldn't like Jacob if you met him face to face. 
when you met him. Jacob was, his very name meant uh, surplanter or usurper, that, that the, the one who would try to take the place of another, if you will. Jacob was a twin, and he wasn't the oldest of the twins. His brother, by tradition, should have been the son who carried on the name of the father and had all the responsibilities that, that went along with that. But as you read earlier in the book of Genesis, what you found out is that Jacob was a mama's boy. And Esau, his brother, was a great hunter. And there was a time when, when Esau had been out doing what men do, while Jacob was, I don't know what Jacob was doing in the tent. I have no idea. But he was there with mom. And Esau comes back, and Esau is tired, and he's worn out, and, 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 and he's so hungry. And, 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 and Jacob is there being Jacob. And Jacob is making some good-smelling stuff. You, you ever watch siblings do this kind of thing? Where, where the sibling does something to manipulate the other sibling? Anybody a sibling in here? You ever manipulated your sibling? Come on, you have. Quit lying. Working things around to your own advantage so, so that you could get what you want and, and even make them think it was their idea to give it to you. Well, that's Jacob here. Jacob being Jacob, fulfilling his name in the life of his brother. So he makes this great lentil stew, I guess is what it is, or porridge or soup or whatever it is. And his brother smells it, and he's famished from being out. And he says, you know what? Just give me a bowl of that stew. Please give me a bowl of that stew. Because if I don't, I'll die. If I don't have it, I'll die. That's kind of a little bit of hyperbole there, but I'll die. And, you know, Jacob, he says, well, what will you give me for that? He said, what will you give me for, for this bowl of stew? And, and Esau says, what does anything that I have matter if I die of starvation? So I'll give you anything that you want, up to and including my birthright. Now think about this. For a bowl of stew, Esau sold his birthright to his brother. Now, it's clear to me in the Scripture that Esau said whatever he needed to say to get that bowl of stew without any clear intention of giving that birthright. Because later on, as you continue to read in the Scripture, comes a time when Isaac was to bless his sons. Now, Jacob's mom, involved in this, says, you need to go to your father who doesn't see very well any longer. And you need to receive the blessing from your father. Well, the blessing was not supposed to be to Jacob, but was supposed to be to Esau. So Jacob's mom was involved in the deception of the father. Because you'll remember, she said to Jacob, put on Esau's clothes. Actually, Esau must have been a, a hairy dude. Because she said, and, and take... Take this uh, this goat hair and put it on your arms because and on the back of your neck. So when he feels you, he'll feel like he's feeling Esau. My mind just runs wild with imagination what Esau must have looked like. And then go build, go make some stew for your father that he loves, and have him bless you. And Jacob, being Jacob, does what Jacob does, and he goes in. He deceives his father. He receives the blessing of his father that should have, by tradition, gone to Esau. Once everything is found out, Esau comes in and says, Well, father, is no blessing for me. And when you read what Jacob said to Esau, it's kind of hard. But Esau treated his birthright as something common. And ultimately, it cost him. 
That doesn't remove the responsibility from Jacob for being the deceiver that he was to get that. He's still responsible, and he'll pay the price for that. Matter of fact, you see as you continue to read that he is so worried about Esau and Esau's reaction to him that Jacob actually flees from his brother. And he goes into the land of his ancestors, if you will, and there he meets someone that that is his match in every way, shape, or form. Maybe even better. He meets a man by the name of Laban. Laban is Jacob's loving uncle. And Laban has this beautiful daughter. Her name is Rachel. And you'll remember the story. Jacob goes to Laban and says, what do I need to do to have Rachel as my wife? And Laban says, you'll have to work for me for seven years, and then I will give Rachel to be your wife. Jacob's saying, I love her so much that seven years isn't that big of a deal. Steve, I'm asking you, are getting married in a few weeks. Seven years, would you wait? Oh, yeah, okay. Good answer, brother. <laughs> and by the way, that's a Rachel too. So, all right. They're getting married the 27th. I'm just bringing them up. So, anyway. So, he works for seven years, and, and the Scripture says it seems like a day to him, you know. It, it, very short time. But when the time comes to get married... What does Laban do? Laban pulls a Jacob. And Laban switches Rachel with her older sister, Leah. Now, I'm not going to tell you what Leah looks like. I have no idea. I don't understand the verbiage that's there, the cow-eyed one, the sad-eyed. I don't know. All I know is Leah wasn't a Rachel. And sadly, Jacob did not love Leah the way he loved Rachel. Jacob found out that he had been deceived by Laban. And he, but he still wants to marry Rachel, and Laban says, "You work with me, work for me for seven more years, and I'll give you, I'll give you Rachel." He agrees to do that, and then Laban says, "Okay, I'm not going to make you wait seven years this time, but but you need to you need to give Re- Leah her proper time, and after that proper time, then I'll allow you to marry Rachel. But you'll still have to work with, for me for for seven years." Well, Laban and Jacob had this conflict going on all through. Their relationship for years, Jacob worked for him, and for years Laban misused the trust that that was in that relationship. And finally, you come to a place that's called Mizpah. Anybody ever heard of Mizpah before? It's a place where the conflict comes to a head, and supposedly Laban and Jacob come together and they and they agree to go their separate ways. I call it a a, a meeting of two scoundrels who decided that they can't live together, and finally they just have to go their way. And the only reason that happens is because God, as you read the Scripture, God intervened. Okay? So we come to our passage today. And Jacob is heading back to the land of Canaan, the land of his father Isaac and his, his grandfather Abraham. And with him now he has his two wives, and along with those two wives he has two concubines, the servants of his wives. Along with them he has 11 sons. And at least one daughter that we know of. Okay? And he's heading back. And as he's heading back, he sends them across, as we read in our our, our scripture, he sends them across the brook, and he stays on the one side of the brook. And during that time of solitude, during that time that he's alone, that he has this man that comes to him, and they begin to wrestle. Now, that in and of itself, if it was just a man, would seem kind of a strange thing. These two guys just out there getting in a wrestling match. But it's more than that. It's more than the, the 
indication of two human beings wrestling because what it gives us a picture of here is that now God is coming into conflict with everything that Jacob is. God is going to wrestle with Jacob at the source of of who Jacob naturally is. It is not the natural man, church, that can understand the things of God. It's not even the natural man, church, that, that can receive the things of God. Something has to happen to this natural man in order that we might be prepared to receive the things that God has for us. And as I said earlier, that could be that God be working in our life and preparing us for the time that he's going to bring us to that point of, of response that we have to respond. I remind you that nobody comes to God because you chose to come to God. Nobody comes to God because you figured it out or because you're super spiritual. Nobody comes to God because you, you just woke up one day and say, you know what, I just need Jesus. So on your own, you went there. Every one of us who are born again have are born again because we have creator God who loves us desperately and who has called us unto himself. And by his mercy and his grace, his Holy Spirit reached out to us and he found us being a bunch of Jacobs. Living lives that were contrary to him, living lives unto our own advantage, living lives that that were about us and about nobody else. Oh, we would let people in every now and then. And we could even express love toward certain people in our life. But we, we struggled with, 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 with sharing that kind of love with everybody else. We struggled with, with allowing other people to have a, a prominent place in our life. We were much like Jacob. Life was all about us. And unfortunately, in many religious experiences, that's what continues on. People building their own religious system that allows them to keep Life about themselves. And I pray to God as the pastor of this church that that's not what this is about. That that's not what we're about. We're not doing what we're doing so we feel good about us. And and, and we're not doing what we're doing that it is about us. I pray that our focus really is Jesus Christ. And we realize that we are a blessed people. Again, not blessed to be blessed and to talk about our blessing but blessed of God that we might be used of God for his kingdom's purpose. God brings us to that place where he literally wrestles with us and wrestles with our soul and struggles with us to bring us to the place where where we are broken before him, where we are humble before him, where we acknowledge that, that we have messed up our lives and we have gone our own way and it hasn't worked. As a matter of fact, it has brought more trouble upon our life. We call that sin. And we are convicted of that sin. And then we're shown through life and by the work of the Holy Spirit that there's not a thing we can do to fix that sin by ourselves. And apart from an intervention, if you will, of God, apart from God calling us, apart from God coming to us, we would perish in that sin. We would continue down that path of being Jacob's until we brought little destruction upon ourselves. You look at the story of Jacob, what you see over and over and over again. And there's no credit that comes to Jacob here. Because even in the midst of him being this schemer and this conniver and this supplanter, in the midst of that, you see the mercy of God in his life, protecting him when he should have been destroyed, guiding him even when he wasn't listening, providing for him, even when he did not acknowledge that it was God who was providing for him. 
working in his life in ways he could not even see as the Holy Spirit was working in his life to bring about God's purpose in Jacob's life. There are those who teach that God can only work in a receptive vessel. I beg to differ with you. I, I, I have a, this fear that what we do sometimes as, as a church, we, we have to be in control. We have to say, God, I allow you to do this in my life. Or God, I permit you to do this in my life. Or God, you know, wh- where we take control of these things. And somehow we think we're in control of what God's doing. And then we tell people, well, God can only use those who are sold out to him. And God can only work through those. Yet the Bible is filled with people that God that were not sold out to God. They say, well, okay, then I don't have to be sold out to God. No, now that you know better, you do need to be sold out to God. You understand my point there? My point is that God's in, God, need, God is in control, and it's time for the church to recognize that he is in control. And stop fooling ourselves as if God is there to do our bidding so that we get what we need. It's so frustrating sometimes as a pastor. Let me share with you a frustration. People who come to me and say, well, I'd go to your church if it did this for me or did that for me. And, did, and my question is, is that how you choose a church? I understand a church needs to minister to people. I understand that completely. Been at this for over 35 years. I understand that. Something's wrong when we start choosing a church that just, the approach to choosing a church is to meet our needs. Instead of, Instead of actually seeking God, say, God, is this where you want me? Is this what, where you want me to be involved? And, and, and be more concerned that that church is teaching the word of God than whether or not they have particular programs that meet your own special need. I'm convinced that the church is weak today, not because God is weak, not because the Holy Spirit has, has quit working, but because we have moved past the place where we are listening to him. And listen, God will keep working, and God will keep being God. God will keep doing what God does. The sad part will be if we don't open our ears and listen, we're the ones that's going to miss it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope that you do. God wrestled with Jacob. May God wrestle with us this morning. May God bring us to the place of brokenness. I love the picture of Jesus that's given to us by Matthew in his gospel as this great stone beautiful stone that comes out of heaven that not not by the hands of man and the scripture describes that stone in two ways it says upon whom that stone falls it will crush that is the judgment jesus is the stone of judgment but then it says this, but upon those who fall upon the, those who fall upon the stone they will be broken jesus is a is a stone of brokenness and humility and brings us to the place where we need to be we see this passage here going back to what, what took place with, with Jacob. We see in verse 24 and 25 that God wrestles with Jacob. And it's not God wrestling with Jacob because God is somehow limited in his power in Jacob's life. Do you remember how God chose to bring you to salvation? Do you remember what happened in your life? Do you remember where you were, what you were doing, what your attitude was, maybe the action that you have on? You know, it's true that God brings all of us to salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit. But what's not true is that God brings us all the same way. See, God is wonderfully perfect in how he brings us to himself. 
There are people in this church that are literally more stubborn than other people in this church. I don't, I'm not looking at anybody. Uh, but some of you are very stubborn. Some of us are very stubborn people. While other people are, seem to be just almost naturally more receptive. And when you think about what God did to bring you to salvation, God is perfect in what he does. And how he brought you to faith was perfect for you to come to faith. When we look at Jacob's a, a, a situation here, it reminds me of one in the, in the New Testament that, that, that I would say probably none of us have had. By, and, and, and that was the one for Apostle Paul. We didn't have a light appear to us. We didn't have that Damascus Road experience the same as the Apostle Paul. But that doesn't diminish the, the, the power and the unique work of God in your life. Because in a very real way, as God wrestled with Jacob here to bring him to where he wanted, God wanted Jacob to be, God wrestles with us also. God moves in us also. God does what needs to be done in each one of our lives so that, so that we might be responsive to him and we might be the people that he's called us to be. So we see here in verse 24 and 25 that God is wrestling with, with Jacob. And it says here that he did not prevail against him. Isn't it interesting that at times the Bible will use a, a what do they call it, a human personification of God to talk about how God works in people's lives? Here, God shows himself as a man wrestling with Jacob. I guarantee that as God wrestled with Jacob, God had to wrestle with you in some things. I guarantee that at the point of salvation, you were dealing with some things that you and I were dealing with some things that we would have difficulty letting go of, that we would struggle with, that we would have difficulty turning over to God. And what is wonderful about God with Jacob is that God had a plan for Jacob and God wasn't going to let Jacob go until God did in Jacob's life what needed to be done. And you know what? I'm very grateful to God that God did not stop wrestling with me or with you. Have you ever thought this about someone that doesn't know God yet? I wish God would just zap them. They're mean, they're evil, they're ungodly. Why doesn't God just zap them? Ray, you're okay with that one? Okay. I, I, think, we, <laughs> I think we've all struggled with that thought at times. Let me ask you this. When God was wrestling with you, how would it be, how would it have been if the day before God brought you to that place of acknowledgement and response to him that he decided to zap you? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Sometimes we, again, we make it about us. And we don't, we don't we're not willing to realize or, or recognize that the God who worked in our life and who wrestled with us and who contended with us and who went through all the stuff he went through through with us in order to bring us to the place of salvation is at work all around us, even in lives of people that we don't want him to save. And I'm so grateful to God that you and I are not the determiners of who are going to come to salvation. Because if that were the case, I'm sure there were people on the other side of our salvation that maybe thought that about us. God wrestled with Jacob. God wrestles with us. God is wrestling with people in Fountain Hills right now. 
And every evidence, listen to me, every evidence of their life may be that they have no consideration of God, that they hate God, that they disdain the church, that they hate that which is good, holy, right. All those things that we look at and say, there's no way this person can ever be saved or there's no way this person should ever be saved. God's wrestling with them right now. I love Henry Blackaby. You know that by now. Because Henry Blackaby reminds us of something crucial and very important. It is God who's on mission at all times. It is God who's at work at all times. It is God who's reaching out to those hearts. It's God who's reaching out to those sinners. It's God who's reaching out to those reprobates out there. It's God who's reaching out to those people that, that we could not even begin to consider that they ought to have the offer of salvation given to them. God's at work in their lives. I remind you of this. Do you know who the worst sinner on the face of the earth is? Do you know who the worst sinner on the face of the earth is? Now I'm not you're gonna run your mind's gonna run through some names right now. Well, they're not here anymore, Pastor. They're already gone. Well, let me tell you where let me tell you where I believe the Holy Spirit brings us, every one of us. That place of total brokenness and humility, that place where I acknowledge, I know where the worst sinner on the face of the earth is, God, is right here. Now, we have been so churchified that we no longer believe that. We think there are people that are worse than us. I know some of you think that. I know I think that at times. When God found you, when God found me, he found the worst of sinners. You need to understand that. Because it's at that place of understanding that, that our hearts are like God's heart for those who are around us who, yet, who have yet to come to know him. God is involved wrestling with people's hearts. God is calling out all kinds of people. God is at work all around us. And as God wrestled with Jacob, God wrestled with us. And God is actively wrestling with people all around us. And God has called his church to join him, not in the wrestling match, but in the expressing of his truth and his light and his love and his salvation and his forgiveness and his gospel and his son to a world that needs to know in the midst of the wrestling with God, God has an answer and a provision through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he's called us to be. God wrestles with Jacob. God wrestles with us. God is wrestling with the world. Look at verse 26 with me. He says, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I love this. God wrestled. God wrestled with Jacob's restless heart. For so long that he wrestled the rebellion right out of him. He wrestled the, the contentious spirit right out of him. He wrestled the, 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 the rejection of who God was in his life. He took it right out of him. To the place that God worked in Jacob's life. To the point that Jacob says, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not letting you go now. You've taken this out of me. You've removed this from me. 
I'm not going to let you go. All I want, listen, you know what he's saying when he says, bless me? All I want is more of you. God did a work in Jacob's life when, when God wrestled, wrestled Jacob to the place where God changed Jacob's very nature from one of rebellion and sin and rejection of God to one where Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. All I want is you now. Isn't it an amazing thing that happens when you are born again? I mean, truly born again. You have a desire. Think about this when you were first born again, when you first came to Jesus Christ. He became all you could see. He became all you wanted. He became all you talked about. Even though you didn't know a whole lot about him except that he had saved you. But but you wanted to tell everybody about him. And over time, we matured. And we lost that sense of the desire to hang on to him, to hold him, to be held by him, to, 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 to the place where we could literally continue to say, Lord, you are all that I need, and you are all that I want, and Lord, I don't ever want to let you go. There's not a time in my life that I want to live. There's not a moment in my life that I want to live that you're not a part of it, that, that you're not being Lord, that you're not being Savior of that. Lord, I need you to bless me. And Lord, just hanging on to you, listen to me, just hanging on to you is a blessing. Just being in your presence is a blessing. Just knowing that you're there is a blessing. Have you ever thought about why we gather here on Sunday morning? certainly is for fellowship. But there is also a promise that the Lord gives us. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I promise you that I'll be there also. There's something unique and wonderful that happens when a body of believers gather in the name of Jesus. And remember, gathering in the name of Jesus is not, not just making a statement, we're here in the name of Jesus. It's hearts that are turned toward God by the work of the Holy Spirit, hearts that want Jesus, hearts that want to experience Jesus. And when a group of believers with that kind of heart gets together, then worship happens. And fellowship happens. And quite frankly, the church happens. When's the last time you felt that you didn't want to let go of God? When's the last time you felt that the only place you wanted to be was in the presence of God. And you never wanted to leave that place. Do you have a desire in your heart, even my Christian brother and sister, that that Jesus would be ever and very present in every event of your life all week long? You want to sense his presence? You want to know that he's there? And it's not a matter of where you are. It's really not even a matter of what you're doing. It's, a, it's the realization that Jesus is there. And your heart has been so changed by the, by the overwhelming work of the Holy Spirit to bring new life into you that you never want to let him go. You never want to be anywhere that he's not. I just love the picture that's here, that, that God wrestled Jacob out of Jacob and all Jacob wanted to do was hang on to God. God literally became everything to him. That's what Jesus tells us when he says, I'm the way and I'm the truth. But the third thing he says is, I'm the life. Jesus is not just the giver of life, church. He is the life. He declared that he is the resurrection and the life. He is life itself to us.
it ought to be something strange and abnormal for Christian, born-again Christian, to ever think to live a day, an hour, a moment without a desire for the presence of Jesus Christ. And yet, it seems in too many cases, the abnormal is when you have a Christian, that's, what, that's the way they want to live. We call them super Christians in our mind. But they're not. They're the normal Christians. Or what should be the norm? If it's been a while since you've had that desire that you didn't want to let go of God, you didn't want to let go of Jesus, then maybe you ought to let the Holy Spirit wrestle with your heart even this morning to bring you back to that place where really it becomes a a place again where all you want is Jesus. Lord, I don't want to let you go. I don't want to let you go. The blessing of your presence in my life is what I live for. It is life to me. So we see in this passage that Jacob wrestled, God wrestled with Jacob to bring him to a place where he desired to be blessed of God. Verse 27, 28, very quickly, we move on. It said, and we see that God wrestled with Jacob, and that wrestling with Jacob changed his heart, but it not only changed his heart, look at what happened. It changed his very identity. Remember that old hymn or that old song or that old gospel? I don't know which one it is, gospel song. There's a new name written for me down in glory or something like that. Is that how it goes? I almost started singing it, but you never. You think about that. In the book of Revelation, it says that we will be given a stone with our name on it that no one knows except for the Lord. When God changes us, when the Holy Spirit touches us, when we are born again, our very identity change. You know what Paul says? He says, you have been made, we believers, have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we are no longer sinners, lost, and undone, but now we have been made, according to God himself, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we say, wait a minute. I know since I've been saved, I've done some things that are wrong. How can I be righteous? Now, listen to what he said. You are not righteous You were in yourself. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Before God, your identity has changed. And now your identity is hidden in Christ. You belong to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And here in this passage, God wrestles with Jacob. God changes Jacob's heart where, where Jacob just wants to experience God and be in God's presence. And then God gives Jacob a new identity. He changes his name, Jacob which is not a very flattering name, to the name Israel. It's interesting when you look at that name Israel. It ends with that little E-L at the end. You'll find that all throughout the Old Testament. That E-L is the, the word God. Okay? And it speaks of a people of God. It speaks of a nation of God. It speaks of those who are chosen of God. And God changed Jacob's name to fit the plan that God had for Jacob's life. But not only for Jacob's life. I want you to think about this. But for the children of Jacob, and not only for the children of Jacob, but for the descendants of the children of Jacob, but not only for the descendants of the children of Jacob, but for us also. We are blessed through what God did through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are blessed and we know God because of God's plan that he initiated 
in, in creating a nation that did not exist in order to fulfill his plan, ultimately to bring Messiah into the world through that nation. So that we might know the heart of God, so that we might know the forgiveness of our sins. But that could not, nor would it, nor would it happen through Jacob until Jacob had a relationship with God or an experience with God. Until Jacob was changed. And here's what I want you to get. From that point on, when God looked at Jacob, he saw Israel. You know why that's important? I want you to get this picture. Because when you were born again, you changed. God recreated you in Christ Jesus. And now when he looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't look at us at what we once were. That's what we once were. He looks at us as what we are now. And here's the wonderful thing. What we are now is eternal, eternally promised to us through Jesus Christ. As Jacob was given a new name, we too have been given a new name in Christ Jesus. And we close out this message by looking at verse 29 through 30 again. And here we see that Jacob knew that his life had changed because of this experience with God. His life had changed so much. First of all, we saw that he didn't want to let God go. But the second way that we see that his life changed is that he acknowledges God in his life here. He says, I have seen the face of God and I have not died. And so what did he call that place? He called that place Peniel. Peniel. Comes from the Hebrew word panim. Panim. When you read this around the worship center every Sunday, when you get about halfway there, you come to that word face. In the Hebrew, that word face is panim. Panim. And it can mean two things. It could mean literal face, or more specifically when we talk about God, because we want to turn God into a human, we're talking about the very presence. So when we seek, it said God says that we pray and we seek his face, we seek his presence, who he is. And when Jacob experienced the very presence of God, and he experienced who God was in the fullness of who he was in Jacob's life at that moment, it changed everything about Jacob. It changed everything about his worldview. It changed everything about even, even where, he, where he saw himself. For he changed the name of even his physical location to a name that declared that God has expressed his presence in Jacob's life. Here's the point, and we'll close. When you experience God, as God wrestles with you, when you respond to God, as he breaks down those barriers in your life, as he transforms you and you, and you want to cling to him and you don't want to let him go, as he gives you, he gives you that, 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 that new name that identifies you as his own, and you experience the very presence of God. It is meant, don't miss this, it is meant to impact every area and everything in your life and my life. Have you ever met a person that when they walk into a room, kind of like a Cinderella moment, when they walk into a room, they just change the room because they're there. 
Say, yeah, pastor, I met the good ones and I met the bad ones. They can change the room both ways. I want you to understand this. God works in our life and he literally wrestles with us at times to change who we are, to, to transform us. He changes our heart toward him to where we have a desire for him that we never had before. He gives us that new name. And then he continues to show himself in us wherever we go so that people might see the reality of Christ in us. You understand what it means to be a Christian living a testimony in this world that we live in? It does not mean Christians trying to live a certain way so that people see a difference in us. That's not what it means. Because, again, that just falls on personal endeavor or or personal ability. What it means is that we live as who we have been made in Christ Jesus. We've been transformed. We desire his presence. He's changed our name. We've experienced experienced his his, his very presence. And and it's just all over us. So that wherever we go, where we go is special because the Lord is there with us. You see, Christian, for us, there is no secular world and sacred world. If we have been changed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, there is no secular for us any longer. Every place we go, because we have the presence of God with us, every place we go is sacred. Because he who is with us and goes with us makes it so. And God has called us to walk in that. God has called us to be that people. And God is at work in our lives making that happen. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me this morning. And I want to speak first of all to those who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those of you who know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. 